Let's stand together at this time as we reverence the reading of God's Word. We're going to be uh, in the book of Exodus, <clears throat> considering uh, continuing on in our study of Moses, the man of God, and a message I call today, How Moses Became Moses. Exodus chapter 2 and verse 9, Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. And the child grew, and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. So she called his name Moses, saying, because I drew him out of the water. And may God bless the reading of his word today is my prayer. You may be seated. Today's message will be a little unusual in the sense that our text message is one that would tell us how Moses got to be called Moses, which is kind of where we're going to get to. But in order to get there, we've got to consider a lot of things that were going on. Most of you will have known these events and known these stories since your vacation Bible school days. Maybe you learned about them in Awana again, Sunday school. It's one of our tasks at a church, as a church family to teach you these great truths. But maybe you didn't grow up in church. Maybe it's all new to you today. Uh, but whether these stories are old news to you or whether you're hearing them for the first time, you're all going to hear the same story. <laughs> uh, I think often of the old hymn writer who said, tell me the old, old story of Jesus and his love. You know, we don't ever change the story. It doesn't need to be changed. It just needs to be told. And uh, so this morning, we will be learning a lot about Moses and how he became Moses, as we see in our text. It had been over four centuries since the narrative of the book of Genesis ended with the story of God raising up a deliverer for his people, whose name was Joseph. I bring him up to you this morning because he is injected into the story Right in Exodus chapter 1, now there arose up a new king over Egypt, which knew not Joseph. Uh, now that's a key piece of information for Genesis, you see, ended with a far, far different situation. You remember how that Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers, how he ended up as a slave then in Egypt. How that God intervened after so many years of not just as a slave, but as a prisoner. And in a remarkable set of circumstances where he was able to interpret a dream that had troubled the sovereign, the king known as Pharaoh, as were all the Egyptian kings. Finally then, Joseph had ascended into prominence. The dreams that God had given him and the dream that God had given Pharaoh has come to pass. And you remember how that Joseph, after all that time, would meet with his brothers. I, after all these years, I can't read that story without choking up. As Joseph began to weep, and he emptied the house, sent everybody out, and cried out to his brothers, I'm Joseph, can you imagine? After all those years of thinking him dead or worse, 
Now there they are, bowed before him, sitting on a throne in Egypt. He quickly explained, Genesis 45 and 6, For these two years the famine has been in the land, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. And God sent me before you to preserve a posterity for you in the earth and to save your lives by great deliverance. So now it's not you who sent me here, but God. He's made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and a ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. Well, the story of that, in spite of the fact that Joseph had sent his family out, such news can't be kept quiet. And it began to spread and spread quickly through the palace and was told even to Pharaoh. And when the report, verse 16 of Genesis 45, when the report of it was heard in Pharaoh's house, as they told him, Joseph's brothers have come. So it pleased Pharaoh. Notice, it pleased Pharaoh and his servants well. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, say to your brothers, do this. Load your animals and depart. Go to the land of Canaan. Bring your father and your households and come to me. And I will give you the best of the land of Egypt. And you will eat the fat of the land. Now you are commanded. Do this. Take carts out of the land of Egypt for your little ones and your wives. Bring your father and come. So we see at the end of that Genesis narrative that Joseph has been sent down to Egypt by God in that remarkable set of circumstances. In a story that tells us, like few other stories in Scripture, the nature of the providence of God and God's providence means that he knows beforehand and plans accordingly. God is never caught off guard. God is never taken by surprise. God never says, oops. Or what now? Marvelous demonstration then of the providence of God. God knows beforehand and plans accordingly. Has sent Joseph down and he tells his brothers, go get dad and bring him. Then Pharaoh, Pharaoh would issue that command. He was delighted to hear that Joseph's family was was in town. And he knew the famine was grievous over all of their land. And so he tells them, you go. Bring all of your little ones. Bring your wives. Bring all your families. And I will give you the choicest land in all of Egypt. So Pharaoh has told him to come. Joseph told him to come. There was one more voice. The most important voice of all. Genesis 46 and 2. And then God spoke to Israel in the visions of the night. And said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. So he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not fear to go down to Egypt, for I will make of you a great nation there. I will go down with you to Egypt. And I will also surely bring you up again. And Joseph will put his hand on your eyes. What God had told Jacob there was that he would die in Egypt. He was describing how his son, Joseph, would close his eyes at death. 
So God has sent them down to Egypt from Canaan. Notice how routinely, by the way, they make the journey. Jacob was an old, old man. In fact, when he would stand before Pharaoh, Pharaoh, we'll see it uh, maybe next week. Uh, Pharaoh asking him, man, how old are you? <laughs> how old are you? Jacob was an old, old man. He made the journey. When he died, they carried him back. Exactly as God said. Uh, Genesis 15 and 13, for his sons carried him into the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah, which Abraham bought from the field for a possession of a burying place of Ephron the Hittite before Mamre. They carried the body back to bury him. So they were able to make the journey rather quickly. Uh, we see the boys being sent down there to get food and going back and then making another trip and going back to get their dad and making another trip. And then when Jacob died, going back to bury him and back again. Uh, this was not an unheard of journey between Canaan and Egypt. They made it routinely. So the book of Genesis tells us the story of Joseph, how God raised him up and sent him to Egypt. He went there as a slave, but God would turn him into the ruler of all Egypt. God sent them there. He promised to be with them there. He was with them. And for a long time, we have no idea how long, they were blessed. They would live in Egypt they would multiply there. They would have a place for their flocks and their cattle. God was with them. And it was obvious because they were being blessed. Woe be to the individual, man, woman, boy, or girl, who experiences the blessings of God and does not give God the glory for it. Oh, God help us. To always recognize that every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. And during those times then, when we're experiencing those blessings, we thank God for them. We recognize that these come from Him. We don't know how long they enjoyed those blessings. But the narrative changes abruptly, significantly. Simple statement in Exodus chapter 1 and verse 9. Uh, there was a new Pharaoh. This Pharaoh didn't know Joseph, the Bible tells us. And he said unto his people, Exodus 1, 9, Behold, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come on, let us deal wisely with them, lest they multiply. And it come to pass that where, when there falleth out any war, they join us also unto our enemies and fight against us. And so get them up out of the land. The children of Israel are more and mightier than we. These words have caused tremendous speculation among both biblical scholars and secular students of Egypt. One of the most studied of all of the ancient civilizations. And the question that they all ponder is, how could the children of Israel be considered more and mightier than the Egyptians? In such a relatively short time to have grown from 
the 70 names that were recorded that went down there to how many there were more and mightier than the Egyptians. Part of the problem is, of course, that Egypt at this time was at the pinnacle of its success, at the height of its power and influence. Later, the Assyrians would conquer them. After them, the Persians would conquer them. The Greeks, very famously, under Alexander the Great, would conquer Egypt. Then the Romans would all conquer Egypt. We've heard about Cleopatra and Mark Antony. We know that they would conquer Egypt. Oh, one after another, after another, after another time, Egypt would fall. But those times are not yet. This was at the very height and pinnacle of their power and influence. And yet the Bible says that Pharaoh was concerned because the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. We don't know for sure who this Pharaoh was. For all the efforts to conclusively establish which one it was, there's still no definite consensus. Whichever Pharaoh it was, it was clear that Moses would have known him, but didn't name him. If you read much online about this event, you'll see references to the mysterious people known as the Hyksos, Uh, They were rulers, foreigners to Egypt who would rule over the land for many years. They were probably in power in the days of Joseph. Their ascension to power could at least partially be in line with what is described in Genesis chapter 47. When they ended up with all of this wealth of food in a time of a seven-year famine And Joseph began to trade and barter with people, selling them food. He sold them food until there was no more money, the Bible says, in Egypt or in Canaan. That all came to Pharaoh. Think about that for a moment. And when they didn't have any more uh, money, then he began to trade them for cattle and ultimately for the land itself. So that Pharaoh became the title deed holder, as we would put it in modern language, to All of the land of Egypt. These days, Egyptologists uh, try to tell us that such a narrative couldn't possibly have happened. After all, they're reading the histories that the Egyptians wrote themselves. They're finding more of them. They found many, many things about the time. Does that bother you, Brother Rich? Not much. Not much. Why? Because... Histories have a way of being told in the eyes of the beholder. Does that make sense to you a little bit? Let me give you a modern example. Uh, Pick up a history book that your high school students, if you have them, maybe you'd have to borrow one, but pick up a history book and read what they are being taught in history about American history today. You won't read very far for the most part. Until you find out that there's some remarkable differences between what we what is being taught as American history today and what I grew up learning about American history. Um, I grew up and, and I, re- I remember very fondly, in fact, the days when our president, Ronald Reagan, referred to America as that shining city on a hill. Uh, the last... Uh, a bastion of freedom, the, the greatest nation in the world. Such a blessing to all of humanity, a shining light on a hill. That was Ronald Reagan. 
uh, Barack Hussein Obama had a much different vision of America. I'm not being political today. I'm being factual. And the history books then are, are always written. They, they reflect what it was. So that there was a time when America then was a heroic nation and a liberating nation. But so often today the United States is almost pictured as an evil and villainous nation. Where is the truth? Well, it's in the complicated middle of all of that. But I'm, I'm going to tell you. I still believe very much that Ronald Reagan had it right. There's a reason why that people all over this planet are going through what they're going through to try to live in the United States of America. I bring this up to you today just to tell you that history has a way of being written in the eyes of the beholder. So... If I look back and I find these ancient Egyptian accounts who tell a different story than what the book of Exodus tells us, I'm going to believe the book of Exodus. I'm going to believe Moses. I'm going to believe the Holy Spirit who wrote through Moses to tell the story as it was. I trust his account. I say that only to say I'm not going to spend a lot of time in our study today trying to reconcile or at any other time, trying to reconcile what the Bible tells us against what uh, hit all the history books or all the Egyptologists are saying. I, I, I don't spend a lot of time with that. I simply take what the Bible says and believe it. It tells us there was a change of dynasty in Egypt. That the children of Israel who were once welcomed with open arms. Under the command of Pharaoh with the promise that I will give you the best of the land. Where once the Egyptians were delighted to receive them. There was a change of dynasty. And as a result of that, verse 13, the Egyptians of Exodus 1, the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor. That is, they worked very hard and they made their lives bitter with hard bondage and mortar and brick and in all manner of service in the field. All their service in which they made them serve was with rigor. So this is the context of the story of how Moses became Moses. A famine happened long ago in the land of Egypt. A horrific famine. Seven years without crops or even planting. God preserved his people by sending them to Egypt. Though you know and I know that God could have preserved them without sending them to Egypt. The same God who made the light to shine in Goshen. We're going to study about in a few weeks. When there was darkness all over Egypt. Could have just as easily made there to be food in the land of Canaan. Food on Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and all their descendants. He could have done that and preserved them. In Canaan, but he didn't. God sent them very clearly to Egypt. Promised to go with them. Promised to make them a great nation there. And promised to bring them out. For a while they enjoyed the blessings of favor. But it wasn't long until those blessings were replaced by a grievous burden. 
I want you to know this morning that the same God who was with them when they were being blessed was still with them when they were being burdened. Such a conclusion is inevitable when you read the text. It's put on prominent display. So that God was with them when they were being blessed and they knew it. His blessings were obvious. And they would look around then and say, God is with us. But then when they began to work. And the months turned into years. Into years. Into decades. And the labor grew harder and harsher. Yet God was still with them. He was with them even when things went from bad to worse. Exodus chapter 1 verse 15. Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives of whom the name of one was Shiphrah and the name of the other Puah. And he said, when you do the duties of a midwife of the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stools, if it is a son, then you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives feared God. And did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the male children alive. Shifra and Puah performed what we today would call an act of civil disobedience. They justified it before Pharaoh when Pharaoh called them into account by saying that the Hebrew women were so active, so strong, so vigorous that they were able to give birth by themselves with no assistance from anybody. That's quite a story. I don't know whether Pharaoh believed it or not. But we do know that verse 22 then, Pharaoh commanded all his people. You notice that all. When he saw then that his efforts to kill out the male children of the Hebrews by the midwives, by requiring them by law to kill the baby as soon as it was born, if it was a boy. When that effort failed, he turned then to all his people, saying that every son who is born you shall cast into the river, and every daughter you shall save alive. That's the story. It's intriguing that our consideration of this text falls as it does. Not altogether uh, unplanned. I was planning on preaching on this text on this day. And that's kind of what prompted me to go ahead. I'd wanted to preach on uh, Moses for a while. I've been thinking about it, praying about it. Had been asked to do so. But I thought this would be a good message for us to consider on Right to Life Sunday. But it is intriguing, ironic, that it comes in after the recent passage of the Born Alive Bill in the United States House of Representatives. This established that a child born alive after a failed abortion attempt must be provided care and is considered a legal person and entitled then to constitutional protection. The Born Alive Bill. 
almost half, almost half of the elected representatives of the United States of America voted against this bill. Say, well, Brother Rich, I hadn't heard anything about it. Now you have. Look it up. It's easy to find. It's called the Born Alive Bill. There's a roll call vote. You can see who voted for it and who voted against it. Born Alive Bill. Moses stands then as a very vivid reminder of what can happen if a baby is deprived of the right to life. How far are we today away from ancient Egypt? I'll leave you to answer that question yourself. The story then continues. And thank God it continues with another act of disobedience. So we've got those heroic Hebrew midwives who refuse to obey Pharaoh's order. So that Pharaoh then commanded all of his people, all of them, to take a male baby when he was born to the Hebrews and throw him in the river. Now, the intent of all this is rather obvious to us. If the male babies were all killed off, then it wouldn't be long until the Hebrew people would just be assimilated into the Egyptian culture. The the women would marry Egyptian men, and in time they would just be a part of their culture. Uh, And So Pharaoh, that that was the plan that he had, very, very obvious, uh, that he was out to simply wipe out the Hebrews, assimilate them in a part of their culture. Uh, after all, they were so numerous and such an important part of the workforce, they didn't just want to kill them all out. They were too valuable. But in this way, this Hebrew, the Hebrews then, could be assimilated into Egyptian culture and all the benefits that therefore they would get out of that. But then comes Pharaoh's daughter. So it wasn't just the midwives now, but of all people now, it's Pharaoh's own daughter is going to perform another act of civil disobedience. Chapter 2 and verse 1, a man of the house of Levi went and took as his wife a daughter of Levi. So the woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a beautiful child, she hid him three months. But when she could no longer hide him, she took an ark of bulrushes for him, daubed it with asphalt and pitch, put the child in it and laid it in the reeds by the river's bank. And his sister stood afar off to know what would be done to him. We have no idea how many Hebrew boys ended up in the same situation. We have no idea. What the Bible tells us is about this one case. Jochebed commissioned her older daughter, Miriam, to watch the baby in this act of desperation as she wove that little ark and set it adrift in the Nile River. Watch and see what happens. You know then how the story continues. Verse 5. It just so happened. Now the Bible doesn't say that. I said that. (laughs) Trying to draw attention to the kind of thing that we often say in in stories. You know, it just so happened. Uh, You know this was not a coincidence. You You do know that, don't you? 
But while then little baby Moses was being set adrift in the Nile River under the watchful care of his older sister Miriam, along came Pharaoh's daughter with all of her attendants to take a bath. And she saw the ark among the reeds, so she sent her maid to get it. And when she had opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby wept. Of course it did. So she had compassion on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. You do notice Pharaoh's daughter knew exactly what she was doing. This is one of the Hebrews' children. Well, Miriam was there, so his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women that she may nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the maiden went and called Moses' mother. Isn't that interesting? And then the narrative continues, verse 9. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, here's our text. Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him, and the child grew. And she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. So she called his name Moses. Moses means drawn or rescued. Because, she said, I drew him out of the water. I rescued him out of the water. Oh, yes, indeed. Brothers and sisters in Christ, God was with them. Same God is with us. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 5, the Bible says, Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things that you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Be content with such things as you have. Well, what things exactly? Well, let me answer that question. The writer of the book of Hebrews said, God said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Jesus Christ will never abandon us, never leave us, never forsake us. God said to his children long ago, you go down to Egypt, but you know when you go that I'll go with you. And it didn't matter that their circumstances changed. God was still with them. It didn't matter that the Pharaoh changed. God was still with them. It didn't matter that they went from being blessed and favored and just everything prospering uh, to, to being hated. It didn't matter. God was still with them. It didn't matter then that they were going to come under such oppression and see this effort and just one of many efforts to wipe them out as a people even. God was still with them. You see, the great truth then that we can learn from this story about how Moses became Moses is that just because our circumstances might change to go from being blessed to being difficult doesn't mean that God has left us. He's still with us. Sometimes God moves to get us out of those circumstances. (laughs) We'll see. Some miraculous and amazing things happen as God begins to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Oh, yeah, God would intervene. He sure would. Sometimes God intervenes in your life and mine to get us out of the situations that we're in. But not always. 
Sometimes, you see, he gets us through them. He gets us through them. The writer of the book of Hebrews would talk about just a little bit later. He'd, he'd talk about, or a little earlier, rather, Hebrews 11. He'd talk about the others. There were some who were delivered by faith, but some who endured by faith. Same God. Same God. The story then of how Moses became Moses ends with Moses in the palace, the adopted son of Pharaoh's daughter. The book of Genesis ended with the Hebrew in the palace. Now the book of Exodus begins with the Hebrew in the palace. The book of Genesis told the story about a man who went from the slave to the throne. Now he's in the palace. Well, Moses wasn't exactly a slave. He was born into slavery and would have been if not God intervened, but God intervened. God would save them and deliver them by bringing them to Egypt. God was with them. God worked through for these five incredible women. Unusual in ancient times, unusual to have such documented evidence, such carefully preserved evidence of women who figured so prominently in God's plan for redemption. Shifra, Puah, the Hebrew midwives, Miriam, Moses' sister, Jochebed, Moses' mother, and yes, even the daughter of Pharaoh, who, like her father, was not named in the narrative by Moses, though he certainly knew her. In all of this, we can learn that the worst day we'll ever have as a child of God the worst day we'll ever have, we can still be assured if we're God's child that God will be with us. And He will either get us out of it or He will get us through it. After all, the Bible takes death and turns it on its ear, on its ear because He said to live as Christ and to die is gain. He may not get us out of it, but he will get us through it by his grace and for his glory. And the last thing I'll share with you today is somewhat speculative. I'll admit it, and I don't do this a whole lot. And we're always on dangerous ground when we try to answer a why question that God doesn't answer. And that's why did he decide to send them down to Egypt in the first place? Since he knew what was going to happen... Knew how it was going to happen. He could have kept them in Canaan, the land of promise, the land flowing with milk and honey that he promised to Abraham and then to Isaac and then to Jacob. And he could have kept them there and just delivered them. And the Bible really doesn't tell us why he sent them out into Egypt. Uh, the only thing I can tell you for sure is he sent them down to Egypt, but when he did, he promised to bring them back. And then later he said, I brought you out to bring you in. So he brought them out of Egypt to bring them into the promised land. That's about all the information God gives us. But I can look in this passage and see something that can be true in my life. And it may be true in yours and probably is in all of our lives. 
we may find ourselves sojourning in Egypt. And as long as we're blessed, we can be pretty comfortable there. We can get pretty comfortable in Egypt. Foreign land. Far from God. We can, we can get pretty comfortable down there. Sometimes maybe God has to work to get us to where we're ready to get out of Egypt. Regardless, we'll see as we go along how Moses continued then in the deliverance business. Today, as we wrap up then, we remind ourselves that ultimately Moses and Joshua, Joseph before him, they were all pictures of the Lord Jesus Christ. Flawed pictures, though they were, Yet they would point to the one who had no flaw, who was without spot, who was without blemish, who would offer himself for your sins and mine and pay the ultimate price for our redemption. So that we can stand here today and celebrate that we have been delivered. We've been delivered. We've been redeemed out of bondage. And we've been transported into the kingdom of his dear son. And that's true of you if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior. If you don't, then I ask you, I call on you. This is the day for you to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, to trust him as your Savior, to call upon the name of the Lord so that you might be saved. Maybe you have some other decision to make. Maybe you need to follow him in baptism. Maybe you need a church home and you believe God's leading you to be a part of us here at Faith Baptist. I don't know what's on your heart. You do and God does and ask you to respond then as the Spirit leads. Let's stand together.